as something that we toss around as a church often. We don't really see it defined like that. That's helpful for me to see it. I was telling Hillary, I think seminary was the last time I'd ever heard anyone define it, you know, but it, those are real people. Uh, my name is Luke. If I haven't met you, I hope I get to meet you after the service, but if you brought a Bible or a device with you, turn to Philippians 2, and we're going to keep cranking through this short little series we jumped into. By the way, if you're a big fan of winter, I hope you're happy. Got what you wanted. <clears throat> For the rest of you, we have 149 days and 13 hours until spring. Amen? Because I have an app that tells me. And while you're turning to Philippians 2, I have three memories that I think you might, you may or may not be able to resonate with. I remember the first time I sat down and had a beer with somebody who is not a Christian, and I was a Christian, and it was in public. I remember the first time. I knew theologically it was okay. I knew I was free to do that, but there was still something inside of me that kind of gnawed a little bit, like, but, but is it really okay? And what does this person think? And what if my server knew that I was a pastor? And can I have two or just one? I mean, what, I mean all these questions that would kind of swirl. It was interesting. I remember being in staff meetings, not in this church, but in former churches where I couldn't quite see the difference between a harvest festival and a Halloween party, right? I mean, I get what a, what a, what a harvest festival is. It's where we dress up like Bible characters instead of Thanos or Jay-Z or something like that, right? So if you were a guy, that meant you put on a robe and you could just choose anyone from the Old Testament and that's who you were. Same thing if you were a lady. But I remember sitting in those meetings thinking, it, it just seems like Small details, it seems like we're splitting hairs, and I have no idea how I would explain this to my neighbor. I don't think they would understand very much. I remember the first time I heard a notable national figure speak on the radio and comment on modesty, what modesty was. And I remember how skillfully they were able to take certain passages and kind of weave them in with their conviction in order to crank out some rules, right? So if you were a lady, it was somewhere in between a hijab and boarding school outfit. If you were a guy, it meant no shorts, facial hair, no tattoos. That's just where it was at. And I remember hearing, thinking, that is crazy. He felt like culture had run amok and the church should not chase after, right? But at the same time, I look out and I see a church of, a, of Jesus in our country that is filled with people that are identical to the world. They're not just in it, they are of it. They haven't just taken the culture of contemporary America, but they've actually taken the gods that that culture can worship sometimes. And so I think it's an important thing for us to talk about a little bit as a church as we go through this study on identity crisis. And what that means is, is we're having an identity crisis as a church because missions is not something we do. It's a people that we are. We are missionaries. And last week we looked at how we travel, maybe not across oceans, but more across ideologies. But one thing that a missionary has to ask is how do we handle culture? How do we handle culture? Especially where it feels like Christ and culture collide a little bit. How much do we embrace? How much do we push aside? So I think Philippians 2 is going to help us today, and I think it's going to help us, or maybe some of us in the room, answer some really big questions that we've had. So I'm going to go to chapter 2 and look at verse 6. If you've grown up in the church, this is a common passage for you. And it starts off, who, and speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if we pause just right there, there are three main movements we see Christ going through in just those two or three verses. He was emptying himself. He's vacating himself. He was doing that out of a sense of humility, and he was changing form. He's changing shape. He's taking a form of the people that he loves and came to rescue. I think this is important for you and me because we're living on this spinning rock, and what that means is we have to decide how much of this world we embrace as a people, and how much do we change form? How much do we do it? I think when it comes to the church trying to figure out how it embraces or engages culture, it looks awkward a lot of times. I think of like a middle school dance where there's music for sure, there's something that looks like dancing happening, but everybody's scared of making the wrong move, no one really knows what they're doing, and everyone's judging the person next to them. That's what it feels like whenever the church bumps into this thing called culture. Halloween is a perfect example. Right around the corner, the church is very awkward when it comes to Halloween. Very awkward. Some will be found handing out gospel tracts instead of candy, right? Some will be found at the jello shot table dressed like a celebrity. Both will say that they're doing so in order to reach the culture for Christ. Isn't that interesting? The variance between the two. And you'll see the gospel track people say, how can being in a pagan party advance the gospel? And you will hear the jello shot people say, I don't know I've ever heard of a six-year-old getting radically saved off a gospel track on Halloween night. It's a little bit of a civil war. I don't think Christmas is any less awkward either, whether to Christmas tree or not, right? Is it okay to spell out Christmas, or is it okay to just put Xmas, or did you literally just pluck Jesus right out of Christmas if you put Xmas because you didn't want to write the whole word down? Do you do the present thing, or do you just say we're going to give a present to Jesus, which means we're going to buy a cow or a goat for a Nairobi villager, and we're not going to give any presents to the kids? What do you do? It's kind of awkward as well, isn't it? It's part of a big list. We've got modesty on the list, alcohol on the list, how we do s just holidays, celebrations, selfies, what we watch, what we laugh at, what we listen to, what we spend our money on, how we ha handle culture in general. And not when I say culture, that could be like a broad sweeping word. Don't just think culture. Culture is made up of people and the artifacts that people create, right? Artifacts could be anything from Vol Navy to moonshine in a jar, to some viral trend. Those are all cultural artifacts, okay? People and culture create cultural artifacts. And the church has a hard time knowing what to do with them sometimes. And I totally understand both sides. And the awkward question that we have to answer if we're going to be missionaries is how much of the culture skin do we put on? How much? How far is too far? We understand that we are to be in the world and not of the world, but we don't have a list of examples, do we? The Bible does not give us a list of what we are and are not to do in some of these gray areas, and we love our lists. Wouldn't it be helpful? I mean, if Paul could have just found just a few extra minutes, that's all it would have taken him, just a few extra minutes to write an extra chapter or a letter to another church and say, all right, chapter 2, verse 1, Christmas trees, no go, wreaths are okay. You know, you could do stockings, but no more than two. You could do cheese on Christmas, you can do fudge, you cannot do fruit cakes. There it is, Christmas, chapter 3, verse 1, right? You can drink, but only on weekdays, only one drink, and it has to be right after 
Chapter four, verse one, you cannot watch R-rated movies. PG-13, totally fine. Because if we had a list, we would be religious with it, wouldn't we? Isn't it interesting that there's no list? Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think that so much of that is left alone? Could it be that culture is changing and people change, that we, our artifacts change from place to place? Listen, last week we talked a little bit about how we travel to different kinds of people. And we saw that being a missionary means abandoning this insatiable need to be adored and to be applauded. And that it does mean picking up a mantle of rejection. And the rejection does sting. It does. But it doesn't chain us to inactivity. It doesn't stop us in our tracks. It doesn't debilitate us. In fact, we are free to love others because we are content and satisfied, not by how our neighbors adore and applaud us, but by the fact that we are adored and cherished by our Father. And we are so satisfied with that that our neighbor, our coworker, the average person can't take away from that or add to it, whatever they feel like contributing. So we are actually free to be rejected. Not because we're convinced what they think doesn't matter, It's because we are content. We don't subsist on their approval ranking. We will suffer the loss of applause if we're doing missions. But then again, that's really no loss at all. So traveling to different ideologies and different people groups, right even in our own zip code, with intentionality is a big step. Showing up is half of the win. That's what we saw last week. But God has shown us that there's something deeper in the model as well. Not just leaving A and going to B, but a church that travels to different ideologies also needs to be incarnational. That might be a new word for some of you. It just means to put on the skin or to put on the meat or to put on the substrate, to put on the culture, to be incarnational, right? It's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. And we're not just called to go to different ideologies, but to put on the skin of those ideologies so that we are understandable. And that's kind of what we start to see a little bit in Philippians 2, the passage that is our passage today. We see basically the incarnation described a little bit for us, how our king, hero, incarnational missionary stooped and bent and put on the skin of mankind. He came in a way that we would understand him. He didn't come as a dolphin or a squirrel or something weird like that where we would just not be able to understand, but he came as one of us, incarnated. I mean, think about it. He was, a, he was a carpenter, which means he wasn't just a person in culture. He was creating cultural artifacts himself, wasn't he? Chair, a table, a stick, whatever. He created it. He, he drank with people who would get drunk, but he wasn't a drunkard. So he came into contact with the people of culture. He celebrated holidays, not always like everybody else. He was a piece of culture. Incarnation is just taking the form of the people that we came to love without taking their gods and making them our gods. Without taking their gods and making them our gods. So if mission is to go out, incarnation is to go deep, right? So one of the things we went over in our missional living class was one of these quotes. It's it's one of my favorites. It's Michael Frost, and he says, By incarnational, we mean it does not create sanctified spaces. He's talking about this, by the way, and even your living rooms, too. 
as calm groups. We mean it does not create sanctified spaces into which unbelievers must come to encounter the gospel. Rather, the missional church disassembles itself and seeps into the cracks and crevices of society in order to be Christ to those who do not yet know him. Man, that's an important quote. That's an important thought. That's a bedrock idea. And it is the, it's the revealed pattern of God, too, especially when you read the Old Testament. I mean, stay where you're at. I'll take you to Genesis 12. We'll put it up on the screen. Genesis 12 is just the call of Abraham to leave home. And it says this in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Listen, some of you know this because we've gone through this a couple times as a church from the stage, but Abraham lived in a comfortable place, a familiar place, and he was about to go into an uncomfortable wasteland, an unfamiliar place. He was wealthy. He had a good thing going. 75 years he lived in this same town. His name meant something. He had security. He had a future. It was a bustling, upscale city. It was a metro area. I mean, the closest things we have in America to where he grew up and where this, this place that he'd spent so much time, what might be like a Seattle or a San Francisco, he was comfortable. And God is calling him to enter a strange place, a hostile place where they lived in tents tent dwellers, and he didn't even know where to go. He was just supposed to just start moving, just start going. And all of his riches would be vulnerable. Vulnerable, because he's carrying it all in tow. I mean, you've been camping, haven't you? I've been camping. I can't camp for less than two days anymore, because two-thirds of your time is spent putting stuff up and then taking it back down. So I've got a two-night rule. I'm not even doing it unless it's two nights anymore, right? But one of the things I've always noticed is how much stuff comes up missing. It's just going from my trunk over here to the pad side over here. It's all it's doing. But somehow, missing a flashlight, three tent pegs, an axe is gone all of a sudden. I always go home with less than I came with. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine doing this with everything you owned? How vulnerable you would feel? How uncomfortable it would be? He was going. That's missional. But he was living like a tent dweller as a tent dweller. That's incarnational right? Incarnational. This would be at a deep cost for Abraham as a blessing to the people around him. What is he doing? He's humbling himself. He's emptying himself. He's changing form, just like what we see in Philippians 2, changing form, changing form. Go to Nehemiah 2, different guy, different time, different place. And he says in verse 5, chapter 2, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah is going to be very similar to Abraham. He left a comfortable place to go to a chaotic mess. He did so at a deep cost to himself, but for the blessing of the people around him, because he too came from a palace with a wealthy job, and that's just not something you turned down back in the day. Not something you walked away from. But if you know the story of Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit wrecked him one day. He was fine the day before, now he's no longer fine. He was wrecked for the city of God and for the people of God. And so what does he do? He enters the call of God and he goes to a hostile place. 
where people didn't even really want him there, if you read the story. It, it was a backslidden place, and there were enemies there. And he went there to build something that he'd never built before, a wall that was 15 foot high and two and a half miles long at best estimates. And that's not even what he went to school for. He has an undergrad in cup-bearing. But we see him being humble, we see him emptying himself, and we see him what? Changing form. Changing form. Interesting. Interesting. I think this matters for us as a church, this type of subject. Most of you probably know this because I've said it before. But when me and my bride came to scout out Knoxville to start churches in, this was one of three cities. We throw a fourth one in there, but I don't think we're really taking Tacoma, Washington, all that seriously. But we looked at Austin, we looked at Richmond, Virginia, we looked at Knoxville. Knoxville was our first city to come and visit. We canceled the other two trips. But what we did is we walked around all the different little puddles of Knoxville and we asked one question. We agreed on one question. What kind of church do you think Knoxville needs? Most everybody didn't go to church. We asked people of different shapes and sizes and ages and socioeconomic backgrounds. We asked them downtown, up in Powell, in Lenore City. We asked everywhere. Now, most of the responses are going to be what you think that they would be. It would be like, we have too many churches. We don't need any more churches. Stay away. That's what we heard a lot of people say. But the people that were helpful, the people that gave us a legitimate answer, is it would be cool just to have a church where we understood what was going on. I go to church, and I don't even know what's going on. The, the, just the, the culture of it all, the movement of it all, it's never really explained. What they're saying is, what they're saying is, is the church culture has become incomprehensible to them. That's where we're at. So this matters because we can't expect to reach the city on our terms, on our turf, Sunday morning. It's not going to happen. We have to reach the city on their terms, on their turf. And that flips the script. That changes everything. And this is the model that we see. This is the model that we see. This is the pattern that God has revealed. The story of Abraham, the story of Nehemiah, they're good stories, but it's not like, not like pearls on a string where they touch, but they don't really have much to do with each other. They are both like giant arrows, giant signs pointing forward to what? An uber missionary who is also incarnational, who will also travel not just a deeper, a deeper gulf, but will actually incarnate to a deeper degree. He doesn't just go, but he goes deep. We see it in Christ. The whole Bible is a story about mission. This whole Bible that you hold is a story about God's mission to mankind. All of it. All of this is to lead us to see a better Nehemiah and a better Abraham. We see in John 1.14 how John explains what this looks like when he says the word became flesh. The word puts on the skin of the humanity that he came to rescue. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what Christmas celebrates, interestingly enough. I mean, we wear red and green and fun sweaters, and we watch Elf again. But really, when you stand back, it's just the highest, the highest pinnacle of God's love towards mankind. It's expressed. So we have a better Abraham, one who would enter a dangerous wasteland, yet bless even those who would try to destroy him in the process. We have a better Nehemiah. We have someone who would empty his royal position and come to a backslidden people who didn't even want him there so he could build a city for them to be safe and always have a home. 
That's why it's in the Bible. So what does this mean for you and me? You and I, as missionaries, God's sent people are sent as he was sent, as Christ came. The same incarnational model. I'm getting this from John 20, if you were curious. John 20, 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We see something very similar three chapters back, John 17, where Jesus prays and he says, I do not ask, speaking to his Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is saying, don't pluck them out of the the soup and the stew of culture. Don't rip them out of where they're at. Just keep them safe. Keep them safe. And this is how Abraham did business. This is how he was a missionary. This was his mode, his identity. Same thing with Nehemiah. Same thing with Jesus. Same thing with Paul. Same thing with you. Same thing with me. So the question is, is how do we do this? Better question, why do we want to? Why bother? Would be a good chaser is a question. When we bump into things like Halloween and viral trends and bar stools, how do we just not be awkward as a church? How do we not judge the person next to us? How do we not be absent? Seriously, how can we be helpful and serve those living in the world that are swimming in a contemporary culture without worshiping their gods right alongside with them? In other words, how much skin do we put on? How much skin? I'm going to put a couple grids up on the screen here in a moment. One of them I cannot attribute because I don't know where it came from. I've heard multiple people say it in multiple different ways, and they've not attributed to it. It's just it's not original to me. But one is that when you come into the artifacts of culture, you can either receive it like it totally is, just take it, enjoy it, it's for you. You can reject it because it is something that Jesus died for and to cover with his blood, or you can redeem it. Receive, reject, redeem. If you're into reading books and you like things like cultural analysis or anthropology, Andy Crouch wrote a very accessible book called Culture Making. I highly suggest you read that if you're anywhere close to being interested in this. He does a great job, and he uses different words. He says some some pieces of culture or artifacts we condemn, some we critique, some the church boringly and predictably copies, and then some we're able to consume. I think they're both kind of saying the same thing, and I think we understand what they're saying. We see a piece of culture and we ask ourselves, can I just receive this? Can I just do this? Can I just take this home? Or is this something that I need to not do? Or if I did, repent for doing it? Is this something I should reject? And sometimes the question has an easy answer. Trading presents on Christmas. Sure, receive it, right? I mean, what's wrong with giving someone a present? Not really a whole lot, right? So I think you could probably receive that. Tailgating. It's just eating food with friends in a parking lot before a football game. You could just receive, listen, you could receive that. You don't have to put a new Christian name on it. You don't have to do that. You don't have to pray right before, in the middle, and after. You're free to do it, but you could just redeem that time and just enjoy it. You could do plenty, but there are other things that you can't do. Pornography, not really much of a way to redeem that. That is what it is. It has to be rejected. Drunkenness. It's not something you could receive. It's not something you could redeem. You just got to reject it, right? Or getting tipsy, as some people say. You got to reject it, right? These are easier. Intuitive. Sometimes not so much, right? 
Sometimes culture just has something, and when you come into contact with it, it gives you an opportunity to refurbish it, to see redemption come, where you can elevate some piece of culture in a way that communicates the gospel to a people in a way that they can understand, finally, in a way that they can understand. I'll go over a couple, the easier ones. I think the easiest one for me to see refurbished by the church, parties, celebrations, and holidays. We can celebrate and we should be out celebrating the world. Hear me, we should be out celebrating the world. We have so much more to celebrate than the world does. So much more. We have full reason, we should be celebrating all the time. You know, it's interesting, if you ever find yourself in the book of Deuteronomy, and I know what some of you are thinking, when would you ever find me in the book of Deuteronomy, right? When you're reading the Bible in a year and you make it through Deuteronomy, which for some of you, it's like the dietary fiber of the Bible diet. It's what you read to get through it. But in the 14th chapter of Deuteronomy, there's some fascinating content in there where it talks about the tithes on the Jewish people. One of the tithes, because they had multiple, they gave between 26 and 30%, right? 20, think about that. Let that sink in. But that's what they gave as a church. One of those components was called a tithe of the feasts. 10% of everything a Jewish family would make back then would be put into an account to do what? To drink, eat in their community. It's a party tithe. It was a party tithe, and this is what it celebrated, God's goodness to mankind. Read it. I'm not making it up. God's goodness to mankind. Let's just take that and see what it would look like today. The average household income in Knox County is $33,500. You take a small church, T take people that call Legacy Home right now. If everybody did that tithe and made that amount of money, we would have over half a, mil half a million dollars set up just for partying in our communities. That's a lot of money, friends. Listen, a bounce house, a nice one, a couple hundred bucks for a few hours. And I'm talking about like the American Ninja Warrior ones, not the, just a castle with a bouncer. I mean, the real ones. DJs, you get what you pay for. But you could get a good DJ. You got half a million bucks. Food, you don't even have to settle for Tennessee barbecue. You could just ship it in from Texas at that point. Just put it on a plane, <laughs> fly it on in. <laughs> and then when revival would come to Knoxville. Now this, this obviously is a crazy example. It's a crazy example. It's me borrowing a piece of culture from the Old Testament. But it provokes the question, doesn't it? How often we outdo the world on celebrating God's goodness to mankind. How often we do that. Listen, if you're in a calm group, it's a beautiful opportunity. You should spend a fourth of your time, if not more, doing nothing more than just celebrating what God is doing. This is somebody's birthday, celebrate it. It's an anniversary, celebrate it. Did that test finally come and go by the grace of God? Celebrate it. Celebrate everything you can celebrate. Celebrate how good God is to us. Our kids aren't sick anymore? Celebrate it. Someone's pregnant again? Celebrate it. We should celebrate more. There's another one. This is not nearly as deep, but I think media and entertainment is something where a lot of it can be refurbished. I'm going to be very careful here. Because I think a good incarnational missionary should be asking good questions and be conscientious about what we consume, okay? Can we discern what this movie or what this song says about mankind? 
What is it saying? I mean, is it art imitating life or is it art kind of defining life a little bit, driving it? It's important. What do your neighbors enjoy about that piece of media, that app? What do they love so much about it? What do you love so much about it? How does it minister to you? What need is it meeting? These are questions we should be asking. Missionaries ask good questions. And I know what you're thinking, the same thing I would be thinking, but Luke, that sounds like a great way to screw up just enjoying something. I mean, I just want to watch a movie. I don't want to sit there and take notes and culturally analyze it and be an anthropologist. I just want to enjoy it. Can I just enjoy Avengers? Only if it's good. Yes, enjoy it. But can you also engage it in a way that it is helpful for others? Because let me just tell you the typical maneuver for the typical church. The typical maneuver is that we build our own industry away from the world, we retreat from the world, we abandon the world and all of its culture. That's why we have Christian music with just Christian music labels, just to Christians. Or we have Christian TV or Christian clothing, Christian clothing, right? Or we have Christian gyms, Christian sports leagues. We've sanitized this special little world, all with bubble wrap, where we never have to leave Disneyland. We never have to go into the dark world. And what I'm saying is that I think we could redeem pieces of culture and cultural artifacts without stepping off the track to create our own copies of it. Can we take something that mankind has created and show the world how it is actually a cry for God, a cry for help? a replacement for God, or maybe how something is a signature of how good God is. Can we do that? Because I think incarnational mission is more than just Christianizing worldly stuff. It's asking good key questions and listening, listening intently on why people embrace culture. I think these become key opportunities for comm groups or community groups. I think it's the hardest part of being in a comm group too, right? I mean, I've done this long enough. I know that the, the hardest thing for a comm group to do, find a mission that makes sense and be incarnational in it. That's number one. Number two, how do we handle our kids? It's kind of rough. Number three, the food's getting out of control, so now it's just a bunch of bags of chips and some salsa every week. How do we do the food thing? Number four, I mean, there's a long list of stuff because they're small churches, and they're very difficult. But number one, this mission thing. It's, it's hard feel like we're spinning tires. We haven't totally got traction yet. How do we do this thing? I get that. I think the beginning is an incarnational missionary asks why a people is drawn to embrace certain cultural artifacts. Why do they flock to certain lyrics, certain artists, certain movies? Why? What are they creating? What is culture creating? Can we join them in it? Are we free to do that? Can we converse with him? Can we depict God through it? I mean, we've brought up Halloween. It's like, what, 10 days away or something like that? Just Halloween is an example. Why are your neighbors celebrating that? I mean, is it just because it's what you do at the end of October? That's going to be the truth, yeah, for a lot of them. But what are they hoping for that moment? Like, what is their goal in Halloween? Do they have a goal? What could it be? How do they know when Halloween has been successful or not? another way of asking the same question. Can you understand it? Can you celebrate it with them? Can you celebrate it better? Will they understand that? You see, this is hard, isn't it? It's just hard. It's much harder than just enjoying culture or abandoning it. Those are the two ditches that we find ourselves doing very easily, two very big temptations. 
But both of those temptations and ditches has us ignoring the world and abandoning our calling. I think one of the big pushbacks I get usually at this point in talking on this subject is it sounds like I'm in dangerous territory of pushing a church into worldly positions. Where I'm challenging you to consider being more worldly, right? Before you cast that vote, I want you to consider a picture of Jesus walking through a field with his disciples and they're eating stuff that they're walking among. They're just grabbing stuff and they're eating it. And then the religious elite who have created their own lists of what is culturally appropriate and what is not, they come and they say, hey, why do your guys not follow the Sabbath? In fact, Jesus, every time we catch you on a Sabbath, you're doing something that is not culturally approved. Why are you doing that? And by the way, words going around, Jesus, that you're getting drunk all the time. And you're a glutton, and now you're breaking laws. What's with that? I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. That really happened. Jesus did not just incarnate. He incarnated to such a level that he was being confused by some, and some were asking questions about whether he was getting drunk. Because he was, what? Hanging out with drunks. Hanging out with lawbreakers, with fiends, with felons, with vandals. Jesus took the form. He changed shape all right. I think it would have just made more sense to me if God would have just come to us in a way that we understood but stayed above the fray. Never be confused with being too close to lost people, like a politician or something, where they're kind of representing the people, but you always get the feeling like they're not really connected with the people. They're in the same state, they're in the same zip code, but not really. You know what I mean? You always kind of get that feeling. That's what I would have expected here, but we didn't get it. He wasn't just around sinners. He was on their turf, on their terms, sharing life with them. With them. But friends, this is hard and it's risky. And it requires us emptying our glory and humbling ourselves. It requires us changing our shape. And your temptation's gonna be just like mine. It's gonna be to avoid the people because this is too hard, or it's gonna be just to enjoy people and culture and forget about all the hard work. Because I'm just, like I said, I'm just like you. I'm ruined for the Great Commission. But I get tired, and I get selfish. And when I minister to a broken city, I want to do it on my terms, on my turf. I don't want to go through all the work of doing it another way. So Philippians 2, to me, maybe to us as a church, it does not just show us the grand master plan of Christ incarnating and stooping and changing shape. It also calls me to repent. It's not just a description of what Jesus has done. It's a clarion call for me to repent and consider, have I really been going out as he was sent? And I was sent as he was sent, but am I really doing the meat of what it means to be an incarnational missionary? You know, just a quick application point or two. I put a couple blogs on the website. By the way, those are on the front page. You don't have to navigate anywhere. It's just right there on the front page. One of them will be semi-helpful. We go through it in the missional living class, and it's just, do you know your friend very well? Do you understand your friend? And it's a quick grid of questions that if you put your best friend in that, you probably couldn't write, write a, a two-paragraph report on what makes your best friend the person that they are. It's pretty exposing, right? It's been helpful for people in that class. But there's a second blog right underneath it, and it's, do you understand what your city is saying? If Knoxville had a voice and was crying out, what would you be hearing? What does Knoxville consider 
righteous. What does it consider a sin? What is your community's most painful experience in the last five years, ten years? What experiences do your community value the most? In what ways does your community even see itself and each other as being self-righteous? In whom does your community trust the most? And if the gospel were to come to bear on your community, what sins would be challenged first? Those questions and about 30 others are listed on that blog. If you're in a comm group, it'd be helpful for you to kind of start rolling through those to give yourself a good cultural depiction of the very people that you came to reach because let's just be honest, it's hard to be incarnational if you don't even know who you're talking to and you can't hear what they're saying, right? This is the beginning of taking form and changing shape. It's the beginning of being comprehensible to a city like this and it will be humbling because it will be on their terms. And when we fully understand a people a little bit more, we could pray more intelligently, and we could see why they pick up cultural artifacts and whether it's okay for us to do it. But here's the bigger question. Why do this? Why bother? Because here's the truth. Doctrinally, theologically, if you decide to walk out of this room and toss this sermon, chalk it up to Luke had a bad day, chalk it up to I just not having it, you could decide not to be incarnational. The truth is, is, God will just simply find somebody who will. God will just, he's not that frustrated with that. He's not freaking out or intimidated. He's ahead of the curve on that. God will raise up others to accomplish this instead. And here's the key, he won't love you less for tossing it. He's not frowning. He doesn't send you to your room without dinner. He loves you. He's excited about you. But you are free to spend yourself because there's nothing here on this planet to satisfy you quite like quite like God, just getting God, just getting God. When you empty and humble yourself and stoop and God becomes our sustenance and we pull ourselves from all the noise and clutter of this place, you will find a satisfaction in God that rivals anything that this culture and all of its artifacts can bring to us. So yes, you're free to celebrate Halloween with your neighbors. You're free to do it. You're free to celebrate Christmas and Super Bowl. If you could do it to the glory of God, you're free to do it. That's the easiest rubric I've ever had. If you're not able to do it to the glory of God, then you're probably not that free to do it. And some of us, totally different sermon, probably could put on a little bit more skin than the person next to you, depending on what you are free to do and what you are not free to do. But then again, we don't judge right across the aisle on that all the time, right? Again, a different sermon. But whether you do or whether you don't, are you emptying yourself in a humble way for the good of others at your own personal cost? That's going to be a big question for you today. Right? Go ahead and stand with me and the band can come back up. I'm going to read another quote from Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making. He says this, it seems clear. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. It seems clear that we will find the new creation furnished with culture. You can catch a picture of that if you just read through Revelation, too. The new Jerusalem will be, a, will be a, truly a city, a place suffused with culture, a place where culture has reached its flourishing. 
It will be the place where God's instruction to the first human beings is fulfilled, where all the latent potentialities of the world will be discovered and released by creative, cultivating people. What he's saying is this. Everything you see, hear, smell, and touch in the new heavens, in the new place that is being created by a better Nehemiah, everything that you catch your senses around will be the fullest potential of what it was always supposed to be. Colors will be what they were always supposed to be. The boats floating around in the water will be the highest of potentiality of what it should always be. This is what we know. But for now, we have what we have. We have culture and the artifacts therein and the people all together. And it is up to us to discern what we can receive to the glory of God, what can be refurbished and redeemed for the glory of God, and what we reject for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. But I will say there is going to be one thing that will look very different once it's reached its fullest potential, and that is a banqueting table. A banqueting table. A place where we share a meal with Jesus. This is how, Luke, this is how Jesus says it in Luke 22. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's, he's sitting at a bitter table, and it's going to change form into a banqueting table of celebration. The highest of its potential, the highest of that table's flourishing will be in that moment. We catch vision of this in Revelation 19.9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So as we're about to worship, we have an opportunity to respond, and one of those is through an image of what they're talking about in Revelation 9 and in Luke 22. When we take communion as a church, we do so in remembrance of what God has done, the bitter table. But we know that it will reach its flourishing in the new heavens, and that is going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we take that communion, we could think of both at the same time, both at the same time. You'll have an opportunity to sing. You'll have an opportunity to lament. You'll have an opportunity to repent. Maybe you're escaping. You're escaping people. Maybe you're escaping people by just refusing to have anything to do with culture. Maybe you're escaping people by just enjoying culture so much that you've just abandoned care for them altogether. And we get to celebrate. Because God did these very things for us totally despite us. And listen, as I pray, I'm going to just remind everybody, as people are taking communion, as people are singing, as people are praying, we're going to have that book over there. You can probably barely see it, a little black book with a pen. Last week we started collecting signatures, not just of you, but the people that are in your missional spheres, whether they're very close to you, semi-close to you, whether they're far from you, whether it's family. I mean, I've been reading through it and praying through some of these requests. I mean, I'm seeing some just heart-rending things. Some of these people are really close to you. You get an opportunity to come up and sign that again. Just to say, God, could you do something through me as a missionary or through somebody else as a missionary where this person comes to a radical saving knowledge of Christ and becomes a disciple of Christ who will make disciples of Christ. So you have an opportunity to come up and do that. I think we filled up 10 or 12 pages already. There's plenty of room left, and I know a lot of you didn't get an opportunity to do that. So that'll be up here for the rest of the morning as well. So let me pray for you. 
and then we'll get to going on worship and response. Father, I thank you for being so sweet to us and so good. Ultimately, the hero of this story is not what we do as we walk out these doors. It's what you've already done to create this thing that we're even enjoying. You were the best missionary. And you weren't just incarnational to where it cost. You were incarnational until it emptied you totally. Not just, not just of what you, you, you enjoyed in the triunity and the, the palace of all palaces, but you emptied even your life. You spent your breath. You spent your last heartbeats to rescue us to please your Father, to redeem a broken cosmos. You did all of these things, and we're very thankful. And we know that we are sent like you were sent, and we know that that challenges us. It's hard, Father, for me to humble myself. That's hard. I want everything on my terms. It's, it's hard for me to empty myself. I like keeping things close. I like the way it is. And it's hard for me to change shape because that requires me doing life alongside people that I don't always understand. So Lord, as we go forward as a church, we pray that you would bless us and give us a heart and a compassion for the broken around us. That, and we know that this is a supernatural thing. This is not something that we naturally just see a, a switch flipped. It's by the power of your Holy Spirit that we have an urgency or a desire. I mean, the same thing you did in Nehemiah's heart where one day he is kind of meh about it and the next day he is traveling and he's putting everything on the line. I know your Holy Spirit does this. And I know before there's revivals in cities, there's awakenings in churches. And I pray that you would change our hearts. That your Holy Spirit would give us just this, this burden for our neighbor, for our family, for our city, for our neighborhood, for our workplace. Lord, that we wouldn't just be missional, we would be incarnational as well as missional. So Lord, as we worship you, we are very thankful and we just need you. We need you to change our hearts. And it's in your name we pray, amen.